the emergency medicine community, and even the neurology community, when we finished the trial, they didn't accept the results. I mean, the, the stroke community, if you go back to the New England Journal of Medicine, a debate, the leading luminaries in stroke, said this was premature. We reject the, the TPA trial as being standard of care for a number of reasons. They just didn't believe it. Welcome, and thanks for listening to Stroke Busters, presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston. Tune in for the latest in stroke care, research, community, and academia. I'm your host, Barbara, and for our first episode, Dr. Alexandra Zapp, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurosurgery at UT Health Houston, sits down with stroke expert and pioneer, Dr. James Grata, to reflect on the past, present, and future of the stroke field. Let's begin with what initially drew you into the field of stroke, which at the time was relatively unsophisticated in terms of stroke diagnosis, treatment, and prevention. I had a hard time deciding whether to go into neurology because as I pointed out at that time, it was an esoteric field um, that was for sort of for the intellectuals and those who didn't want to do anything. Um, and I remember some very influential people in my life telling me, why do you want to go into neurology? They don't do anything, as I sort of alluded to. So um, I was very torn and interested in public health. And so I wanted to do something that um, um, would make a difference in public health issues and wasn't just an esoteric thing. And stroke was a huge, was is the biggest public health problem in neurology. So I felt if I'm going to go into neurology, I want to do something that has, you know, public health relevance and I'm going to help people and and and, and do something that, that makes an impact on in that respect. And then I also um, was, again, along the same line, sort of a hands-on person wanted to see differences. And he, it, stroke was very intuitive. It was uh, the people who are interested in seeing patients doing things were always drawn to the stroke field, whether it was in the critical care or emergency management of stroke. Um, even before there was stroke treatment, those of us who were really interested in sort of getting our feet wet and our hands dirty were more interested in, in stroke, and that's how it's panned out. It's the one aspect of neurology where you run to the emergency room and or where you have to put in catheters and do things, which, uh, you know, I've always liked that part of it, the emergency nature of it. What monumental changes have you witnessed in your years of clinical and research practice? Well, that's a uh, easy question, you know, because virtually everything we do have been, has been a monumental change. Um, stroke, when I started off in the uh, 19... 60s and, and 70s was untreatable, both in terms of prevention and treatment. There was nothing we could do to prevent a stroke. There was nothing we could do to treat a stroke. So everything that we're doing now essentially has been a monumental change. But I, I suppose uh, the biggest, uh, the three biggest things have been first uh, for prevention, aspirin, and then uh, anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. When you think about the numbers of strokes that have been prevented by those two simple uh, medical uh, interventions has been huge, the numbers of lives saved. And then, of course, uh, 
for treatment, I think TPA put stroke treatment on the map. Uh, that was probably the biggest game changer with acute stroke treatment and everything has followed, uh, uh, including the current endovascular uh, revolution. Now you were involved in the landmark NINS TPA trial, which led to the first approved treatment for acute ischemic stroke. In retrospect, would you have done anything differently in the NINS trial? Huh. Great question. You know, um, it, I look back at that, it's almost like thinking back on the Kennedy years, you know, even though <laughs> you look at it and you and you and you dissect them, there was there was a lot of turmoil and, and a lot of things you could argue were, but but through the lens of of uh, sort of the, the, the rose colored lens, it seemed like ideal times. The NINS trial actually was two trials. The, the phase one was a part two a study really uh, just confirming the dose and the part two was was a, a confirmatory phase three trial and uh, when we started we never intended it to be the the pivotal trial it was and people thought when we started we were crazy to even be giving tpa to stroke patients because of the risk of bleeding and so we really that's why so many there were so many conservative uh, elements built into the inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, that and that's why you know, they've abided those exclusions, but they were put in there just to keep it as possibly safe as possible. So I think that um, when we finished phase one, we all had worked so hard to get our stroke systems up where we could get patients treated within 90 minutes, because as you know, half the patients had to be treated within 90 minutes. In fact, we couldn't enroll another 190 to 180 minute patient until we had a zero to 90 minute patient, we had to keep at each site the number of zero to 90 minute patients equal to the number of 90 to 180 minute patients. And getting those 90 minute patients was really difficult. So we all worked so hard to set up our systems that when we finished part one of the trial, nobody wanted to dismantle their weight and analyze the data and publish them and then do a second trial. Because we realized once we dismantled our or let our systems sort of the language for a while while we were analyzing the data, they would fall apart. So in a sense, phase one was done and the steering committee or the DSMB, we were, the investigators were blinded. The DSMB said, well, okay, uh, you need to go on and do the same experiment all over again because they saw the data, they saw it was positive. They said, go back and do the same experiment all over again, but pick a endpoint because our primary endpoint in phase one, you may remember, was improvement at, over the first 24 hours. They said, pick a 90-day outcome that, that was cons showed consistent and persuasive differences. So we did that. And then we did the second part. And of course, it was positive. But everyone looks at everyone looked at the NINS trial as a single trial. And I think had we actually published the data after the first study and shown the, the positive 90-day data and the suggestive 24-hour uh, data, and then gone on and done the second one, it would have been looked at as two separate trials. And the emergency, where I'm going is that the emergency medicine community and even the neurology community, when we finished the trial, they didn't accept the results. I mean, the, the stroke community, if you go back to the New England Journal of Medicine, a debate, the leading luminaries in stroke said this was premature. We reject the the 
TPA trial as being standard of care for a number of reasons. They just didn't believe it. And uh, the emergency medicine committee, as you know, definitely didn't believe it. So I think that in retrospect, had we stopped after the first one, published the results, and then done the second one, maybe um, maybe we wouldn't have been able to do it, but I think we would have been able to, and it would have been a little bit more persuasive to the stroke community. And, and look how fast endovascular therapy was embraced um, on the basis of just a single trial. I mean, after the the uh, study from the Dutch Dutch group, um, uh, the MR Clean study, everyone embraced it. That wasn't the case after the NINS trial. There was a lot of resistance. So that's the only thing I think we could have done differently. No, those are excellent points for our listeners to bear in mind while reading these trials. Now, switching gears, what would you have liked to see happen that has not happened in the field of stroke? We've not been able to get better compliance on our patients and that we, we haven't set up our systems. Angel Sharif here with her clinic is, is the first one which really is that I know of that's really making an effort to engage the community and try to get people to actually adhere to the therapies that we have. And even when it comes down to, to diet, which is probably the biggest public health problem we have in the, this country is, is obesity. And, uh, you know, as, as a stroke community, I don't think we're paying enough attention to that. What changes do you foresee in the science and treatment of cerebrovascular disease over the next five or 10 years? One of the things COVID has done is as we work more remotely, people are spreading out away from urban centers as people who have money and expect good health care are moving out to KD and to the and to out, outside the city. They want to get good health care. You're going to find community hospitals are going to be able or going to need to carry out thrombectomy and other advanced treatment. Um, so I do think that's going to happen. And I, and I think, I personally think that sort of like the cardiology model, we've always been be, in acute stroke treatment, sort of be, been behind the cardiologist in a lot of ways. Angioplasty and stenting isn't something that's just done in Baylor Medical Center or Methodist Hospital or Memorial Hermann. It's carried out in most community hospitals. And I think thrombectomy is such an effective treatment. I think it too eventually will be carried out in every hospital that can give TPA will eventually our, I think our vascular neurologists will get trained up to do more of them will be trained up to do thrombectomy. Uh, to me, it should be a required part of vascular neurology training. I mean, that, that the fact that, that only some vascular neurologists are trained in thrombectomy, we, we need to have an army of, of vascular neurologists out there. But I don't think the vascular neurologist carrying out thrombectomy needs to know how to do aneurysms or AVMs necessarily as expertly as they're done here in the medical center. And, and that's not to say that thrombectomy is, is easy. It isn't. And clearly it's going to be done better the larger the volume. But a person who's out in Victoria, Texas, is better off getting a thrombectomy by somebody who does maybe uh, 10 or 20 a year than not getting it at all. And that's a great segue to my next question, which is what advice do you have for stroke trainees aspiring to lead the next evolution of stroke care and research? I think, first of all, you got to think big. When I say big, you don't want to just 
take an area that's just a iterative iterative change from what's going on now. Uh, you want to think think about what what is the next frontier of treatment? What we really don't know anything or much about. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of attention right now on white matter disease and small vessel disease. We really are just beginning to understand what it is that leads to um, small vessel pathology there and the treatment. And when, and when you're treated, talking about white matter disease, you're also talking about vascular cognitive impairment and vascular dementia, of course. Understanding that, I think, is, is, is a huge area. It's for those people who are interested in the, in the basic science of, of um, stroke. And, and I also mentioned that, you know, a lot of people cast uh, stones at animal models. But it was really animal models that taught us in the beginning that stroke was treatable. And it was the initial um, um, demonstration of the ischemic penumbra and a reversible injury was made in tissue slices and in animal models. And while they may not have translated with neuroprotection, they taught us that stroke was treatable and that there was a time window and et cetera. So I think there's stuff we can learn also about small vessel disease from animal models. But I think that imaging has sort of taken the place of modeling. And now with advanced imaging, stuff that I don't really understand, like measuring iron deposition and around blood vessels and things like that, probably can teach us more or just as much as animal models. So I think I think that imaging and understanding small vessel diseases, that would be a huge area, I think, for fellows to get involved in obviously application of treatment and then uh catheter you know the, the catheter-based approach is being able to extend beyond you know what we're doing um in terms of smaller vessels so I, I think those are the areas i would look at um but i, I think if i were uh, a fellow right now i would def i would definitely learn how to do endovascular therapy it's sort of if you're interested in stroke it's 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 almost too powerful not to have at your fingertips if, as a practitioner now i also want to discuss your current work in the stroke field which is a mobile stroke unit dr grada you established the nation's first mobile stroke unit here in houston in 2014 delivering acute stroke treatment with tpa in the pre-hospital setting for the past several years the mobile stroke unit has been operated as part of the best msu clinical trial which compares MSU management to standard management to determine how much faster patients can be treated, how much better patients do if treated in the first hour, and the cost and quality adjusted life years saved by the MSU approach. Can you share your experiences on the mobile stroke unit with our listeners? Obviously, I believe that mobile stroke units speed, I know that they speed treatment, and I think that they, as a result, improve outcomes, not only for TPA, but maybe even more uh, strikingly for thrombectomy, because as you know from your own work, it saves as much, if not more, time getting the patient into the endovascular suite. Yesterday, we had a wake up stroke uh, patient up on the, um, uh, out by the loop. We picked her up, and uh, she was within an hour or so of awakening and um, had a normal CT scan and um, had a non occlusive thrombus in her middle cerebral artery and we treated her with TPA uh, 
based on a wake-up protocol of a cold, normal CT scan within an hour or so of awakening. Her door to called ahead to uh, Spiros Blackburn, who was on here in the medical center, and she was in the endovascular suite within 27 minutes and um, had Tiki 3 on first pass. So that's sort of what the mobile stroke unit can do in terms of it, it gets past the whole drip and ship concept of having to stop. We basically are the dripping hospital and the initial evaluating hospital. So there's none of this plus, uh, you know, back and forth from one hospital to the other with its associated problems. And then, of course, you have the skilled investigators on the mobile stroke unit who are able to, um, you know, clearly identify whether it's an LVO or not or a stroke mimic. So I believe that we're, our results are going to be positive. And so the other area that I, I think, I mean, I think 10 years from now, if our study is evenly, even close to positive, 10 years from now, every city is going to have mobile stroke units. And the entire battleground for stroke treatment is going to be in the pre-hospital setting. And so I think it will make a, a public health impact on stroke treatment. So I, I think that um, if I were also going into stroke, another area that I would definitely be interested in is, is pushing stroke earlier and earlier. I think it's a total different physiology in the first hour. Clots are softer. They're easier to lice. Almost all, we see dramatic improvement after TPA. And when we see dramatic improvement after TPA, it's almost always in patients we treat in the first hour or two. You, you tell me the next time you've had a patient <clears throat> with an LVO or a big stroke um, four or five hours after the onset that you give TPA to and see that patient dramatically improve over the next hour. Those dramatic improvements are almost always patients you treat in the first hour or two after symptom onset. And we've got data to show that in the in the mobile stroke unit. So I think getting that patient treated, no matter what we do, including neuroprotective therapy. So again, if I were a fellow, I'd, I'd look back at some of these uh, uh, neuroprotective drugs that we've um, uh, abandoned or maybe some uh, newer ones. But the most important thing isn't the drug. It's That's important, but it's getting it in very quickly uh, in the mobile stroke unit or something comparable. Over the past 20 years, stroke education and treatment has now focused on the time window paradigm. Time is brain, and we want to move as quickly as we can on our stroke patients. Dr. Grada, how have you witnessed the treatment of stroke evolve over time in terms of this urgency? Yeah, the, um, you know, the, I will say one thing that um, every investigator in the NINS trial um, got um, beaten into them just by, because you had to get these patients treated within 90 minutes of symptom onset, you had to streamline absolutely everything. There was, there was not time to waste anything. I remember when I came, when we started the NINS trial, most, most of us didn't even know where the emergency room was. I mean, there was, I remember when I was a resident, Norman Geshwind, who was the father of aphasiology, I was, went to a dinner at the chairman of neurology's house at the University of Colorado. Norman Geshwind was the visiting professor. I was the chief resident. And this was in the, this was the 1970s. There was no treatment for stroke, but the Phil Yarnell, who ran the stroke program at, at the city hospital in Denver, was very interested in stroke. Anyway, make a long story short, 
I'm at the dinner. I get a page to the emergency room. There's a patient with a stroke in the emergency room. So I turned to Dr. Geshwin. I said, I'm sorry, Dr. Geshwin. I have to leave. I can't give you your ride back to your hotel. There's an emergency stroke patient in the emergency room. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, there's no such thing as a, as a neurology emergency. And there is. And uh, I mean, that's the, but, you know, we, so we didn't even know where the emergency room when we knew where they were, but nobody ever saw a neurologist in the emergency department. The emergency room docs didn't even know who we were. So we had to flow chart everything that had to happen, you know, how the labs had to be done, where the CT scanner was. And no, no emergency rooms had CT scanners back then. We had to take the patient across the street sometimes to the CT scanner. We'd wheel them. We, we did Park Plaza Hospital down the street. The CT scanner was in one building and the emergency room was in another go upstairs to the second floor to get the CT scan done. Anyway, in order to get that patient treated, I think we've lost a little bit of that sense of urgency in getting the patient treated. I mean, I, 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 that's not a criticism, but unless somebody's there and you've got a stopwatch going, and there was actually an article in Stroke, just uh, this last printed version that showed a time clock sitting next to the bed or next to the CT scan showing the time elapsed. And I think we need more of that in our emergency department so that we're more aware of how much time we're wasting by doing things that we don't need to do or waiting. Yes, and that gives us a great perspective on stroke, which is now preventable and treatable, but remains a fifth leading cause of death and a leading cause of permanent disability in the United States. Absolutely, I mean, when you look at the, the um, the, uh, we, we pay lip service to it, but it's the number one cause of adult disability. And, and the, it's, it's amazing to me on the mobile stroke unit going around to see um, how many people are living in with disability in their homes. I'm not whether almost so many people have disabled relatives parents or friends or family members who they're taking care of in extended families in the city and how many lives are impacted. Uh, you know, we don't have the rehabilitation um, centers. We don't have the chronic care facilities and the insurance to be able to take care of these people. So the burden of taking care of disabled people falls on families and caregivers. And so many people, their lives are affected. So it, it's just a huge, I mean, I know we're preaching to the choir, but it's just a huge public health problem and, and, and it destroys lives. We see it. We see a patient come in with a young man with hypertension who's living, who's working and leading a perfectly normal life or woman, you know, with kids or whatever, and they have a cerebral hemorrhage. Their life as they've known it is over. Right. They, they, they're in one second. It's changed irreversibly. That's not to say there isn't value in going forward, but it's definitely changed and definitely diminished in terms of its quality. And I now want to take the time to thank you, Dr. Grata, for answering all of our questions and reminiscing on the evolution of stroke care. So that concludes our very first episode, Stroke Then and Now a conversation with Dr. Grata on the past, present, and future of the stroke field. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed, because we will be releasing more episodes in the near future. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UT Health Stroke to stay connected and be the first to know of our next episode. Visit our website, utstrokeinstitute.com, for more information about the institution and our stroke program founded by Dr. Grada himself.